following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 5, 1 through 7. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen, amen. Well, uh, COVID, yep. You guys tracking with me here, COVID. One of the things COVID has offered us is the opportunity to binge a lot of Netflix. Am I right? Am I right? All right. Well, uh, one of the one of the things that my wife and I have been watching lately is um, the Cobra Cobra Kai. Have you guys seen this on Netflix? A couple seasons worth of it's a spinoff. If you've seen Karate Kid, right? A little bit of nostalgia for you going back. It's like the characters of the Karate Kid have come back. You know, 25, 35 years later, and they're like adults now trying to figure out. And and, and it's very interesting, very entertaining, very insightful. I think as we sort of you know break it down and like what's going on in, in these different interpersonal. Um, relationships, and what we see is Daniel LaRusso, who in the original um, Karate Kid is presented as this hero, right? He's the underdog who rises up, secures victory, and and here he has um, sort of made his way to success in the business world, Um, but but his take on karate, his his viewpoint on this is that um, he's not in it to be the aggressor. He's in it to, to have some sort of self-protection, to be balanced, to, to develop his character. Really, that's, that's a lot of what his focus is, his methodology for, for using karate. But the anti-hero who we see is Johnny Lawrence. Um, he has a very different take on karate. Why you do karate? Well, I can't really say it in the church, but he would say karate makes you a bad guy in the best way possible. Um, he, and so his motto is like, be the aggressor. The, 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 the Cobra Kai motto is strike first, strike hard, no mercy. Show no mercy. Because in his mindset, in this view of karate, to show mercy is a sign of weakness, right? And to be weak is to be a loser. And so this whole mentality is wrapped around is be the strong guy. Don't show mercy. Dominate the field. Now, when it's said explicitly, when we hear and kind of see how Johnny Lawrence makes his way through life, it we look at that and probably not agree to his motto, right? That, that's not, that sounds like the words of a bully, somebody who's just going to domineer every room that he steps into, going to ruffle a lot of feathers, which he does. And so we kind of look at that and say this motto of strike first, strike hard, show no mercy, we don't really agree with that. Um, yet, as we like intellectually dis- dismiss that, there's something that's still embedded within us. It's with, embedded within our culture where that is actually a mindset that we default to more often than we think. In fact, if you just do an assessment of our culture right now, one of the things that you can say, what's our culture like? Well, our culture is a cancel culture. You've probably heard that word a lot, 
right? Well, what, what is a cancel culture? Um, well, th- this cancel culture is essentially a manifestation of this Cobra Kai motto, strike first, strike hard, show no mercy. And, and so when somebody shows weakness or failure, usually it's a celebrity, somebody who's in the, the public eye, the general public pounces, critiques them, and then dismisses them, says that this person is canceled. Like, we're not into whatever they put out anymore. We just want to dismiss them. And you've seen people like Kevin Hart, who was scheduled, I mean, this was a couple years back, scheduled to to host an award show. They found a tweet that was like, buried like eight or nine years deep. They found this tweet. They dismissed him. He found, you know, you see with Ellen that's happened recently, Ellen DeGeneres, Kanye West. I don't know how many times that dude's been canceled. Jimmy Fallon, right? You go down the list and and even most recently, not just the celebrities, but when you see the ruling that's happened with his Breonna Taylor case um, in in Louisville, you see the uh, Attorney General Daniel Cameron who's been dismissed. He's been canceled by his own African-American people. As as an attorney, um, they say, you have betrayed us and we don't want anything, like your color of your skin is not, like we don't associate with you anymore. So he's been canceled, right? You see this everywhere you go. And what cancel culture does, it operates under the guise of we're, we're holding people accountable is what it says. It's like we're holding people accountable to a higher standard, whatever that standard might be or, or however skewed that standard is. But really, when you get to the bottom of it, cancel culture is really just a way of exercising moral superiority over other people. It's a way to maintain the upper hand so people are below you and you can maintain a position uh, above them, a, a condescending position. So if you break the rules, whatever the rules are, the rules, there's no mercy for you. Canceled, boom, you're, you're shut out. And, and people like, they stop buying your products, they stop watching your movies, they stop anything that you have a part in, they say, no, we're done. We don't want anything to do with you. Boom, you're canceled. Now, as Christians, I hope we step back and say, man, this is toxic, right? Cancel culture is anti-Jesus. Cancel culture is anti-gospel. And so as Christians, I hope we see this and we kind of want to move away from it. But the thing is, this sort of weasels its way into our own hearts, into our own lives, where this isn't just happening with public figures that do stuff wrong, right? And it might be stuff that they've done wrong, and it's rightly like we, we sort of, you know, speak against it or something, but not completely cancel it. But we see how this works itself into our own lives, and it mer- manifests in our personal relationships, where, where we keep grudges against people who have hurt us. Right? We're unforgiving towards people who have sinned against us. And a lot of times we have this like, inner drive to retaliate. I saw that with my, my son uh, yesterday. Uh, we had, we had a, some, some friends from our MC over hanging out with us last night. And, and my oldest got hurt, um, scratched on the back or something. And I just saw this in his face. He just wanted to retaliate. He wanted to lash out and hurt the kid who hurt him. Right? And, and that's like, that doesn't go away. You know what I mean? You don't outgrow that initial feeling. You just get better at hiding it. And so we harbor these, the, the, this sense of grudges, unforgiving, this wanting to retaliate against people who have wronged us, hurt us, disrespected us, offended us, or sinned against us, or, or even just disagree with us, right? And so what do we do? Well, we go through our, our Facebook feed and we say, well, I'm tired of hearing from this person. I'm going to snooze them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unfriend them. Right? I'm tired of hearing about this. I'm gonna delete this person's number from my phone so I don't have to feel the, the, the urge to reach out to them. And, and, and you see an enemy hit hard times, right? Something bad happens to an enemy, somebody who, who you just, you know, not naturally gravitating towards, and you say, well, it serves them right, right? This is what was coming. That's their lot. 
We get dismissive and disrespectful towards people who we disagree with. And the scary thing is that, that we can be two-faced about it, right? You know this thing like Midwest nice? You know that, that phrase? Midwest nice? Like we're pretty nice people. Well, it's like we hide behind that fake face of smiling and cheerfulness and really inside our heart is quite disgusting. Now, when you break this down, this cancel culture down on a, on a philosophical level, it's basically a social expression of a Darwinian, a Darwinian philosophy, right? Survival of the fittest. Where we're taking the survival of the fittest and we're working it out within the context of our relationships and our social dynamics. But Jesus stands today before the church, and he he. He doesn't want to just show us how to survive, how to make it through this world into the next. Jesus stands before the church to show us how to thrive, how to step into this blessed life, the good life that he's offering us as he invites us to be kingdom people walking in the kingdom of God, which is both right here and will come in its fullness someday. Now Jesus says here in Matthew Verse five or seven, like this last beatitude that Mel read for us, he says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And what Jesus is wanting to show us that, that being merciless, right, this, this motto of show no mercy is not congruent with the kingdom of heaven. It, it's actually antithetical toward kingdom life because it robs you of the blessing, and it robs others of the blessing of this makarios, this, this blessed life. It is to live against the grain of life. So Jesus says to us, the way of flourishing is the way of mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now we need to back up and think, like, what is mercy exactly? One of our tendencies, I think I talked about this maybe last week, is, is we use a lot of churchy words, and we sort of think we know what we're talking about, but a lot of times, it's like a vague sense. And so it really helps to hone in and say, well, what is mercy? What is mercy? Mercy, shortened up here, is acted out compassion. Mercy is exuberant benevolence. Now, sometimes when you're talking about grace and mercy, right, there, there's sort of a distinction there. We hear, well, grace is, or mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. But really, when you look at mercy, it sort of overlaps. There, there, there's a lot of, of overlap here between grace and mercy. The lines sort of blur. Because what mercy shows us in its, its acted compassion, its exuberant benevolence, mercy both withholds condemnation and blesses the undeserving. See, the good life the life that Jesus is offering us, the invitation into this kingdom life now is opened up to those who are merciful. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, as we go through each beatitude, you might notice that there's a, transact or a transition that happens within the beatitudes. The first four beatitudes note our lack, something that, that we are lacking within ourselves. There's a void within us. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, right? Mourn is to, to express loss. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. There's, there's a void. There's an emptiness there. But here we're at the end of the last beatitude. When, when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the promise is they will be satisfied. They will be filled. And so here we see this transition from going from this place of longing, of emptiness, to now we have this fullness in Christ. 
And so he says, we're, we're now we have this positive attribute. We have these positive value-adding characteristics where we now have mercy. And this is because, not, not because we've, we've mustered up some sort of positive characteristic in ourselves, it's because we've been swept up into God's economy of mercy. See, this is what, when you're hungry, when you're thirsty, and your need is met for no reason, like, you don't deserve it to be met. God moves in, that's a merciful act, and so we get swept up into God's economy of mercy, the, the, the economy that dictates the kingdom of heaven, and so we then give what we have received. You understand? We, we, we are able to give what we have first received. In fact, this is one of the indicators that we are actually kingdom people, that we are, are actually Christians, people who have experienced the mercy, not, not just people who assent to theological beliefs, but people who have actually had a firsthand encounter with the mercy of God that has changed us and shaped us into merciful people. We've received mercy so we can give mercy. Now in this regard, Christians ought to be the most merciful people in our city, right? If we've really experienced the mercy of God, oh, how would that change us, right? We ought to be the most merciful people, but we tend to hoard this mercy. We tend to to make character judgments, right? Does does this person really deserve my mercy, right? Have they they elevated themselves to a place of deserving need, right? Because in our minds, we differentiate between undeserving need and deserving need. Have they risen them, got, rose themselves up? And then I can, no, we, we tend to hoard mercy. We forget what we've been given. And we ho- withhold mercy from others. And in doing so, to do this, to withhold mercy, is to reject the way of Jesus. This is what we've been talking about in the sermon series. It's called practicing the way of Jesus. To withhold mercy is to not practice, it's, it's the opposite of practicing the way of Jesus. And what we do instead is we adopt the values of our cancel culture and become anti-Jesus, anti-kingdom people. And Jesus, he wants us to know that there are people like that that are anti-Jesus, anti-kingdom people within the church, within religious circles. In Matthew 23, this is um, the way that Matthew writes. He starts out with the Beatitudes and there's these blessed statements, blessed are those who, and you get to the end of of the gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 23, Jesus is not speaking blessings or blessedness upon people. He's actually speaking woes. He says, woe to those who, and and this woe is is basically the opposite, the inverse of what it means to be blessed. He's saying, woe, things are not gonna go well for you. You're gonna find yourself in a very distressed state. And when he looks at, the people who are before him, they're primarily religious leaders, and he says, woe to, those, woe to you who put forward external appearances of religiosity, right? He's talking about, oh, you're tithing well, and you, you have this outward expression of doing religious things well, but you've lacked or you've neglected weightier matters like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. See, if we fail to live into this merciful life that God's mercy affords us, there is a woe that awaits us. And Jesus warns us of the sorrow 
that would await us if we choose to forget to leave mercy aside and live according to our own cancel culture values with the parable of the unforgiving servant. Now, if you want to turn with me, if you have your, there's a Bible in front of you, and we're going to jump, we're going to look at Matthew 18 here in this parable, and then we're going to jump to Luke chapter 10. So grab a pew Bible. Uh, I wish I knew what page. Somebody, somebody's at Matthew 18. Would you yell at what page that is? What is it? 480. And I think that Luke is 507 or 506 or 50 something like that. So 480 for Matthew 18. Here we go. We're going to take a look at this parable of the unforgiving servant. If I can find it in my own Bible, there it is. My page is not 480. So Jesus is standing here. Peter has just asked him, Lord, how often do I forgive my brother? Right, he, this is the sort of the question that stands before Jesus, and he goes into telling the story. He says, "The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his account with his servants." Now, I'm just I'm going to abbreviate this here for us for the sake of time. Okay, so we, we see this servant who's eventually going to go before this king who he owes a very large debt to. You can follow along with me here as I'm telling the story. He goes before this king. This king is owed money, and, and this servant is unable to pay the debt that he owes, and the king is, he's sort of upset. He knows that he's owed money, and he says, well, I'm just gonna sell this guy and his family to pay off this debt, right? Indentured servants, basically. And then what happens is the servant falls before him and is pleading with him. He's, he's like, please, please, I'll pay it back. I'll figure out how to do it. And the king looks at him and has pity on him. See, the king looks at him and has pity on him, and then he says, you know what? I'm gonna forgive your debt. And so the servant walks away. He's probably a happy man, right? It's a large sum of money. He's been forgiven of it, but what does he do? Instead of going and and sort of like living in this forgiven state where he's forgiving other people, he goes to a peer who owes him a tiny fraction of the amount that the king just forgave and says, show me my money. He puts him in a headlock, chokes him out. He's like, you gotta give me your money. And, and as people hear about this, the word travels back up to the king, and the king hears about this, this servant who's been forgiven of this large debt who's going to collect a small debt from this peer, and he's upset. He, he essentially revokes the forgiveness that he, initi- or he offered the, the servant initially, and he throws him into prison. Now Jesus goes in at the end of this, as he tells this story, he says, um, at the end of this story, um, after in anger his master, the king delivered him into the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now there's a warning here, there's a sorrow here to go from experiencing the joy of forgiveness to seeing that sort of sucked out of the room and this is essentially what the, the, the sixth beatitude that we're looking at today is about. It's, it's essentially a promise, right, the statement of blessedness, but there's also a warning included in it. There is like uh, two sides of the same coin. On the last day, when Jesus comes back to make everything that's wrong right, consummate the kingdom of heaven, the merciful people, the people who have experienced the mercy of God and thus live mercifully will bask in more mercy. There will be no shortage of mercy for those merciful people. But for those who live um, mercilessly, the mercy of the merciless will be voided and revoked. That's kind of scary when you think about it. And when you put it like this, it's, it's pretty straightforward. 
right? It's pretty easy to connect the dots. If I want to receive mercy on the last day, I should be a merciful person. It's simple in theory, but much harder in practice. And we wonder how do we do this? How, how do we live a merciful life? What does this look like and how can we do it? Now the parable of the unforgiving servant shows us that mercy manifests itself in terms of forgiveness. One of the ways that mercy will manifest itself is in forgiveness, not just a, 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 a face value forgiveness, but what Jesus says, a forgiveness from the heart. The ability from the deepest parts of our being to relinquish whatever wrongs have been done against us. Now, when we think of forgiveness, it helps us to think in terms of, of relational commerce, because, and maybe this isn't the best way to think about this, and I hope you don't always think about this, like this transactional uh, thing that happens within relationships, and it's just inevitable. There's this give and take. There's a give and take that happens within um, relationships. Now, being sinned against is where people take from you without your consent, right? Where people take from you without your consent in some way, shape, or form. And, and so being sinned against um, is not something that, that fosters a good economy of relationship. It actually sabotages the economy of relationships. Where people will do or say something that comes at your expense and you're left with this debt that they've incurred. Now, everybody knows what it feels like to be sinned against, right? Everybody knows. It hurts. It, it hurts to be violated like that. It hurts to be taken advantage of like but, but we also are, are guilty of sinning against others in this way too. And as we feel being sinned against, what do we do with this? You have this choice. You can either hold on to it. You can hold on to that resentment, hold on to that debt, and, and make people pay it off. Right? You hold it over their heads and it's accruing interest and it just always, it's always accruing interest and so they've always got to try to perform for you in order to get into your good graces. Right? That, that's not a very healthy way for relationships to function. Or, well, the other part is you just cut them off. You send them, you send them to the collectors. Right? <laughs> I don't want to deal with you. <laughs> Canceled. But there's an alternative here where we learn how to forgive those who have sinned against us. It's where you actually take on the debt and you pay that debt yourself, right? Just like the king, he paid for that servant's debt out of his own pocket. It, money had to come from somewhere to forgive it. And so we are people who ought to learn, as Christians, learn how to forgive, right? That, that is a merciful thing to do. Jesus in his Lord's Prayer, as we'll get to here eventually, he says, um, teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forget our debtors, forgive our debtors. Right? This, this is sort of how that works. Out of our forgiveness from God, we forgive others. And so there's a sense where mercy involves uh, the dimension of forgiveness, but there's another dimension. Right? It, it, it's not just forgiveness for those who have sinned against you. It goes beyond that. It's extended. Mercy can be extended to those who are found in a compromised state. Mercy is directed toward those who mourn, who are hurting, who are oppressed and overlooked. In this regard, it goes beyond kindness. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. And in kindness, really, anybody can be qualified to receive kindness. Right? Somebody who's in good spirits, they can, they can be a benefactor or a, a beneficiary uh, of receiving kindness from somebody else. Kindness doesn't discriminate in who it's directed toward. But mercy 
is specifically devoted, directed to those who are vulnerable. People who are downcast. And so to show mercy, to express mercy, this compassion side of it, is to use our prosperity, our posterity, to uplift those who are downcast. And one of the most vivid and potent examples of this compassionate mercy is in Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. So if you wanna flip your Bible there, it's probably just a few pages back, I think it was like 504 or 50 something. Really easy to find from that Matthew passage. And we're just gonna read through this and and work through it here uh, little by little. So let's let's take a look um, at Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, that's Jesus, to the test, which is an interesting take. Trying to put Jesus to the test. Now Jesus isn't scared of it. Like some, some of us might be in the room right now that like, you know, I just don't know about Jesus. Is he really who he says he is? I, just, I gotta figure it out. Jesus, isn't, Jesus is ready to take your testing, folks. This lawyer stands, he puts Jesus to the test. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now this question, this eternal life, this, this is nuanced in the sense of this good life. What do I need to do to enter into the good life? Now he's, he's thinking about the kingdom to come eventually, right? But he's also thinking, what right now, in this immediate context, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now this guy, this is like part of, you know, like, if he were dedicated to the Lord, this is what, what it looks like to, to raise your kid in the way of the Lord, right? Teach him to love the Lord with all your heart, head, heart, strength, with all of your all, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So he knows, he knows the Sunday school answer, yet he wants to make sure that he's a shoo-in, right? He, he wants to, to justify, verse 29 goes on, trying to justify himself, he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now here is where Jesus the testing gets flipped, where the lawyer sets out to test Jesus and said Jesus flips it on him and, and Jesus starts testing this lawyer. Jesus tells a story. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down, and I'm sure this is a familiar story for most of us. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers, robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, or providence, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now this is very interesting here, because when he talks about, let's see, um, he's talking about a Levite, a priest, these are religious leaders. These are people who should be leading by example, that their life should be something worth emulating. And here we see religious people see somebody hurting and they walk to the other side of the road. They see him and avoid him. Now we might wonder like, well, why would they do that? They probably got good reasons for doing that. You know, if he's a Levite, he's gotta be able to perform uh, religious ceremonies, 
right? So he's got to maintain his cleanliness if he's a priest, right? So whatever it might be, right? But, but really what Jesus, it's not, what he's trying to show us, it doesn't matter what the reason is. They, that's exactly what Jesus critiques in Matthew 23 where he says you, you, you value this external appearance but you lack, you, you forget to offer justice and mercy and faithfulness. So in this sense, it doesn't really matter what the reason was. They just, they were merciless. They walked past. Now enters a story, a, a Samaritan man in verse 33, but a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him. Now, this is, this is really important for us to know contextually because, you know, what, to us in 21st century, what's a, what's a priest, what's a Levite, what's a Samaritan, what's this guy from Jerusalem? What, what are, we don't understand the social dynamics, but to understand this, put it in context, this, this guy from Jerusalem who's a Jew is arch enemies with Samaritans. These Jews had a very condescending viewpoint uh, a view of the Samaritans, they, they saw they were half-breeds, right? They, it was a social dislike. It was, there was religious tension. There was racial, racial tension between them. And so there are all these reasons why this Samaritan man and this Jewish man seem to be incompatible according to this, the culture standards. And so in this regard, when the Samaritan man is walking by, it would have made sense for this guy not only just to walk on the other side of the street or even... I mean, it might make sense for him to actually step over him and maybe step on his fingers on the way by, kick him while he walked by, right? That would have been culturally, socially understandable. That would have been logical according to their social dynamics. But that is not what this good Samaritan does. The the good Samaritan, verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, Now, verse 33 shows us the first two components, the first two elements of true, real mercy. First two elements. There's four I want to get to. The first element of mercy is that you see hurting. You see with your eyes, you have this ability that it comes on your register, on your radar. You see that there's somebody who is in a, in a despondent or in a desperate state. You see it. You don't, you don't invert your eyes. You don't turn away. You don't step over. You don't get to the other side of the road. But you, you see it. Now, all three men in this story have seen this hurting man. All three of them see it, but that's, that's where the, the similarities end. They see the hurting man, but the next part is of mercy, the next element is that you have compassion. That's exactly what the Good Samaritan has. He looks, he sees, and he has compassion. He pities. There's something in his heart that knows this is an image bearer. This is a fellow human being who has found himself in a troubled patch, and he doesn't, you know, brush it off and say, I'm, not, I'm glad it's not me. He's grieved about it. He's sympathetic toward him as this fellow human being. And, and so we even see this, this dynamic of, of seeing and having compassion with the, the, the king in the story of the unforgiving servant as well. Right? The king sees the debt. He pities the debtor. So it's the first two steps. See have compassion. Now, I think this is one of the spots where 
the church in general, like the, the universal church of Jesus, but also when we get into the Western church, even into our church, here's where the church can fail. Where we fail to see hurting people, we fail to be compassionate towards hurting people. Whether that's toward the poor, toward the marginalized, with racial issues. And I want to press on this, specifically on, on right, race right now. Because we are living in a moment in time, and some of you are going to, oh, he's getting political. This, this isn't a political thing, guys. This is a matter of following Jesus and our understanding of race and how this gospel influences how we view our fellow human beings. I want to press in on this because it's timely and important for our Christian witness that we really hone in on this. And I know that as I talk about this, I run the risk of being canceled by some Christian circles. Right? Oh, he's just a he's a social justice warrior, right? He's some liberal woke pastor trying to bend to the culture. Like social justice is a biblical concept. In fact, any sort of social justice that we experience in this world in our culture is because it's grounded in biblical ideas. Now, I'm willing to be canceled by those folks, honestly, because I would rather be canceled by people who try to maintain that superiority, right, look down, than be canceled by Jesus on the last day, because at the last day, Jesus is gonna look at us and say one of two things. He's gonna say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come enter into my rest. Or he's gonna say, depart. Depart from me. I never knew you. And what he's talking about there is you in a sense where we've never really known the mercy of Jesus in a way that's gotten deep into our bones to make us a merciful people. Seeing and having compassion for racial issues is where, historically speaking, white conservative evangelicals have failed. And I'm not saying this to beat us up. My goal here is not to beat us up, but to lead us into the good life, to lead us into a place where we get to partner with Jesus and see what he's doing in the reconciliation of all things. Now, Christians, we we tend to advert our eyes from the cries of injustice from our African-American brothers and sisters. Happened back in the civil rights era with Martin Luther King. Like, there, there are Christians that were like, you know, I, I'm for you, I, I appreciate your message, but please don't come to our city. Right, we wanna turn our eyes. I don't wanna actually deal with the problems that are going on in my own city, in my own church. Now, right now, I'm not, I think that there are two ways why, why we end up in this. This sort of, we don't see it, we don't feel compassion for it. It's either an unintentional thing, where we have, uh, we just maintain a sense of naivete, where we're not exposed to the conditions that some of our brothers and sisters or fellow human beings are experiencing, whether African-American or other minorities of living in this culture that's not necessarily set up for them. And so we're naive to that and and we we don't actually see it or even feel grief about it because we we aren't aware. We're not, it's not exposing, it's not exposed to us. So there's this unintentional Act where we've sort of adverted our eyes, where we haven't been moved to compassion, but there, there's also this heinous evil in the church where it's an intentional thing, where, where we have seen it, where we have heard it, 
And, and instead, we have turned away from it. We have, we have justified, we've, we've sort of um, debunked all of whatever their statements might be so that we can keep going in our own way of ignorance. We discredit what they say. We drown out what what their cries are for our own cries, right? Guys, oh, mm, I'm gonna hold my tongue. See, if we see, if we hear the cries of injustice, I don't think our natural reaction, or our first reaction is that of compassion. I think that it's usually that of judgment. We say, oh, well, we need all the facts. There's another side to the story. They probably did something to deserve it. They probably did something wrong. They should have just listened. Now, some of that, like, this is a very gray area, and so I hate to make sweeping statements like that. So there are some places where it's like, that might be true. That might be true. But if we go initially to to being judgmental or critical and we don't experience mercy or feel pity or have compassion for people who are hurting, it shows us that we just don't even understand how Jesus is compassionate towards us. If we don't feel pity for our fellow human. True compassion, real compassion, moves you toward this third element of mercy, which is costly action. Costly action is the third element. See, compassion without restoration, compassion without restorative action, without costly action, isn't mercy. It's a mob. So, okay, I was just, I was just being critical of white conservative evangelicals, and now let me, let me just turn and oscillate here to, to people who maybe are... are more with a liberal bent. Because if, if we can feel all the compassion in the world, but if we don't actually take costly action, we're just gonna perpetuate the problem, and then we're gonna end up with angry people pointing the finger at people who have been doing stuff wrong. Taking no responsibility, even if it's not ours to take. Taking no responsibility, just being an upset group of people. That is not mercy. It's incomplete mercy. See, costly action is what the Good Samaritan does. It's what we see in verse 33, or excuse me, verse 34 through 37. He says, this is the Good Samaritan. He went to him, that's the dude who's beat up, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, do you see the cost that it required of the Good Samaritan to do this? He, he, he gave him oil and wine. That, that stuff's not cheap in first century. I mean, we go to Aldi right now, you could get a bunch of olive oil for like a, a nickel, but it's like, all, like oil and wine, that was costly. That was something that was very valuable. This Good Samaritan puts himself out. He's riding a donkey. I don't know where he's going, but he's riding a donkey, and instead of riding the donkey the rest of the way, he gets off. He lets the guy get on the donkey and walk with him. 
He pays for his time at the end. He binds up his wounds. He feeds him. He, he literally take on every expense that it was going to take to help this guy, to get him to a restored state. This costly action says, here's what I can do, not here's what I want to do. See, that, the costly action says, here's what I can do, not what I want to do. The goal is not to make yourself feel good as a helper. See, that, that's a counterfeit version of mercy. If I'm doing stuff to make myself feel good, that's not mercy. That's self-motivated garbage is what it is. But mercy says, here's what I'm capable of doing. I want to help restore you. It's your interest that I have in mind. Now, this is the final element of compassion here, and I'm wrapping up. The fourth element of compassion is the ability to do this, right? To see, to feel compassion, to take costly action. The fourth element is to do it even to your enemy, to do this without discriminating. See, like I said earlier, the Samaritan and this Jewish man, enemies, opposite end of the spectrum. And we see this mercy come from an unlikely candidate. His enemy shows him, not, not the priest, not the Levite, this enemy is the one who shows this beaten man mercy. Jesus goes on, look, he asks this question to the, to the lawyer, which of these three guys do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. See, true mercy can be given even to your enemy. Somebody who you are diametrically opposed to, rather in, rather in, in worldview and philosophy and whatever it might be. It's one thing to be merciful to somebody you like, but a completely different category to be merciful to somebody you disagree with, somebody you don't get along with. This is what sets biblical mercy apart from every other kind of mercy because it gets to the heart of the gospel. See, this is, where, this is what shows us the kind of mercy that we receive from Jesus. It's at the heart of Jesus. It's the essence of Jesus. Now, because of my own default, because of my own sinful bent, I'm not good at mercy, guys. I have felt so convicted this week about how I lack mercy in my life. It feels at times it's impossible to be merciful. That, that the good life of Jesus say, blessed are the merciful, and I, I'm gonna realize I'm not merciful. Like, I, I lack that. I'm not full of mercy. Uh, at best, I'm like sporadically distributing mercy, right? But I'm not full of, I'm not merciful. But when I see this, when I see my vulnerability, when I see my own brokenness, I am finally put in a place where I can see the mercy that Jesus has for me and receive that mercy. See, Jesus doesn't hold it against me. Jesus doesn't keep us, you know, oh, I'm gonna see if you can work. I can see if you're gonna elevate yourself to a place of deservingness. And then I'll, you know, then I'll give you mercy. No, Jesus moves towards us. Jesus doesn't cancel us, doesn't cut us off. His arms are open to us and he's running toward us. He is merciful. Ephesians 2, 4 tells us that God is rich in mercy. We heard it this morning in the, the, uh, the uh, absolution of sin. God is rich in mercy. In fact, this is the one place, I think it's the only thing in scripture that, where scripture tells us what God is rich in. He says he's rich in mercy. God is loaded with mercy. mercy. 
which means that no one is beyond God's reach. Nobody is beyond the reach of Jesus and his mercy. All you have to do is cry out to him. All you have to do is realize, I am in need. I am a needy person in this regard. That I have sinned against God. In that regard, I need to experience his mercy and forgiveness. I have not lived a compassionate life. Therefore, I'm in need of God's compassion towards me. See, Jesus is the true and better good Samaritan who sees us in the misery of our sin and our brokenness, who is filled with compassion, not resentment, and he moves towards us to take costly action, costly action that would even cost his own life. He not only lived a life in devotion, uh, in service to us, living a perfect life we could not live, he died the death that we were meant to die because of our sin, because of our brokenness. He took this costly action and he did it not for his buddies. He did it not for the people who have lifted themselves you know, up a little bit to be a little bit more deserving, who have put themselves, he did it for his enemies. That while we were still sinners, while we were still hostile and enemies of God, Christ Jesus died for us. And right now he stands ready to receive any and all who would collapse in the arms of this merciful Savior. He oozes mercy. In fact, everything that Jesus does is motivated by mercy. Now, you might be saying like, okay, I'm in a season of life where it just doesn't feel like Jesus is being very merciful to me. He may, he's got you in the woodshed. I've been there, oof. But even the woodshed is Jesus' mercy towards us. This is what theologians call the severe mercy of God. See, Jesus, he tells us uh, a, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not put out. So even when Jesus presses in, when we feel the conviction of Jesus, when we feel him like pressing at something, when we feel that we're in a place where, man, I, I'm just getting pinched a little bit, it is the mercy of Jesus to bring us to that point because he, he functions like, like a surgeon. He functions like a surgeon, not a lumberjack. A lumberjack just hacks away. Jesus is a surgeon with that scalp of precise cuts. He's making exactly the cuts that need to be made for us to, to move more deeper into his mercy. See, this is, this is the severe mercy of Jesus where he only hurts to heal. He only cuts to bind up. It's not for condemnation, but for redirection into his mercy and grace. It's because he is rich in mercy. And he's happy to give it. See, not only is Jesus the true and better good Samaritan, he's a true and better king. The amount of mercy that Jesus has for us is so vast, so enormous. Like, we can't even comprehend it. I, I, like, it's in that passage. I'd go back and read it. It's so big that anything that we have been sinned against or any place that we've been violated by another person in comparison is pennies to the billions of dollars that Jesus has in his richness of mercy. See, this is what we have access to. And if you have experienced the mercy of Jesus, what happens is that it transforms you from the inside out, that you first receive mercy and then you live mercifully. This is what sets Christianity uh, apart from any other religion where, where religion's gonna tell you to become a merciful person, to elevate yourself, and then God will be merciful to you. But the Christian gospel, Jesus says, 
there's no way you can be merciful. I'm just gonna dump my mercy on you anyway. And in doing so, I am going to transform you. So it's our response to other people's suffering, to their sin when they sin against us is directly related to how we think Jesus is going to respond to us. If we think Jesus is gonna be uh, withholding from us, then that's how we're gonna be with other people. But if Jesus dumps his lavish mercy, his lavish grace upon us, that is how we can respond when we've been sinned against. Jesus gives and gives and gives, and it's because he gives, I'm saturated in his mercy, and the more I'm saturated in his mercy, that's why you need the Sunday gatherings, that's why you need missional community, you need to find places, find things, that's why you need to be in your Bible, to saturate yourself in the mercy of Jesus that's available to you, and when you're saturated in the mercy of Jesus, you're like a sponge, when I pick you up and squeeze you, mercy oozes from you too. See, this is the only way you can do what Jesus told this lawyer at the end. He says, who, who, who was the one who showed mercy? It was the Good Samaritan. And he says, go and do likewise. The only way we can go and do likewise if we, is if we understand the mercy of Jesus and the volume, the pure volume in which he dumps it on us. That's the only way. It's only an encounter with a merciful Jesus that makes me merciful. Like that, that's how you become merciful, full of mercy, is because it's dumped on us. Now, let me just put this in the context of our vision at Sacred City, uh, our mission for the church. Make disciples, plant churches, renew the city. Part of Making disciples is making people who follow Jesus, people who practice the way of Jesus and are merciful. We wanna be a community that extends mercy and grace and forgiveness to one another. There might be a brother or sister in your community right now that you need to go, that you're withholding forgiveness from, that you're bitter towards, that you're, in your mind you've sort of canceled them out, maybe in a microwave, where you need to extend forgiveness and compassion. Somebody, maybe somebody in your MC is in a, in a broken position or somebody at your workplace and you need to learn to extend mercy towards them. But here's the thing. The way that we renew our city, the way that we change the quad cities is by being neighbors who are merciful to those who don't deserve it. That's how we're going to change the city. That's the vision that Jesus has for the Quad Cities and how the church plays a role in this, that the Quad Cities will become a more merciful Quad Cities because the gospel is saturating its people and as we're saturated in the gospel, we become merciful people. God, would you do this work in us? We pray, Lord, that you would make us merciful people, that we learn to live into the fullness and the goodness of this life in the grain of your created order. Teach us to come to you, teach us to, 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 to take as we need from the mercy of Jesus, not be afraid to do it. Jesus is happy to give it to us. Would you help us to reach out and cry out for mercy, God, to, to humble ourselves? And then in doing so, would you make us a merciful people who love those around us, who are merciful to those people that we live around, work with, we, we hobby with, that we're in community with? Change us. Would we be the merciful ones who on the last day, when you come to set all things right, Jesus, you say, well done, good and faithful servant, come and enter your rest, that there would be more mercy awaiting for us. We ask this, God, that you would do this with the Spirit's help in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.